Good afternoon. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking in verses 18 through 21 this afternoon. We have upgraded some technology in the, in the church, and so uh, the upgrade in technology means my clicker no longer works. That's how upgrades tend to work, right? Um, and we'll, we'll get that figured out in a following week, uh, but this week I'll have to indicate uh, when to switch the slides, and, uh, and we also don't have a screen back there, all right. <laughs> all the upgrades, all right. No, I, I am grateful as, uh, as, as movements are making it, it's a wonderful blessing. Let me also mention today uh, that just this last week I was in Denver, Colorado with uh, Brian Murawski, some of you know him from what I understand, and uh, so there is a conference, uh, the Evangelical Theological Society Conference, and I was just reminded of God's good sovereignty. It was multiple years ago that I saw Brian sitting across the way in the, in the airport going to this same conference, so obviously a few years back, and as I saw him across the way, I said, I think he might be going to the same conference as I am. Uh, well, I saw him in the hallway at the conference. We struck up a conversation, struck up a friendship, and in God's good sovereignty, that's what's led me to be here this, this afternoon with you, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have gotten to know him. I wouldn't have been able to come to this, and so <clears throat> I'm just thankful for God's, God's work in that way. I do want to pass on to you greetings from Pastor Brian. Uh, 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 we, we had a couple of lunches together, and I can assure you that he is in prayer for you as, uh, as you continue along. He's grateful to hear the good word of what's happening here, and uh, I've enjoyed being with him. Now, uh, we're dealing with a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're actually getting into the section that I might call the controversial section. Why is it controversial? Well, you'll notice when I read the passage but even after we read this passage, we're going to go from talking about slavery, which is the topic today, and then we're going to start talking about marriage and the relationship of males and females in marriage. And, and we get into some things that maybe we'll put it this way, are countercultural. And we're going to begin even that this morning or this afternoon. So let's begin reading the passage here in chapter 2, verse 18. Here's what Peter says. Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it or you're punished for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, well, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You'll notice that we're finishing in the middle of a paragraph. We're going to pick up verses 22 and following next week. But this week, we want to talk about Paul or Peter's admonition here. To slaves, but more broadly than slaves, to all Christians to follow the footsteps of Jesus. If you could turn to the next slide. One of the interesting things that Peter uses here in this passage is this reference to following the footsteps of Jesus. 
And that language of following the footsteps of Jesus is actually the same language that was used of children when they would trace the letters of the alphabet. Education hasn't changed in the last couple of thousand years, and in the same way that we often now give to small children to learn how to write the alphabet, we give them something to trace so that they could learn to write the letters. And I probably need to do more of those because I always got my B's and D's mixed up, but children are tracing the letters so that they can figure those things out. In the same way, what Peter is telling these believers is that Jesus has left us a pattern. He's left us a pattern to follow. And that, that pattern is, oddly enough, a pattern of suffering. Suffering and justice. If you go, go ahead and go to the next slide. Now, there's a reason I have how to draw a unicorn donut up on the screen. If anyone has small children, maybe you, you recognize that YouTube clip right there. Do you know what it is? It is uh, this guy who, I mean, th- this YouTube clip right here, six minutes long, has had more than seven million people watch it. And do you know what it is? It's, it's a man with his daughter, sometimes a son, who draws various things. This time, a unicorn donut. And he draws line by line, teaching you how, make make this line, then make this line. And by the end of it, I have produced something that looks almost like that. (laughs) Almost. But what is he doing? He's giving us a line by line play concerning how how to draw in a certain way. It's actually quite fascinating because if you ask me the question, can you draw? I would say absolutely not. But I could draw something like that. And you say, well, how could you do that if you can't draw? It's because I've been provided a pattern. And that helps immensely. And in the same way, what Peter is saying here is that Jesus has left for us a pattern of living. But I mentioned a moment ago that this pattern of living is anti-cultural in many ways. We're going to read things in this passage, not only about Slaves following masters, that obviously is anti-cultural in in many ways, and we'll talk about that. But also, the main theme of the message is actually to endure unjust suffering for the sake of God. And boy, is that not anti-cultural. We live in a Western world that says, no, unjust suffering should never happen. Unjust suffering is the premier enemy for which we need to fight against. Justice is a main theme of our culture today. And especially when we think of unjust suffering, we say we must exterminate it at all costs. And you're not going to hear me say that we need to perpetuate injustice. But what you are going to hear me say is this, that Jesus lived a life of suffering injustice. And here's what he says to us. I've left a pattern, and if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. And we have to come to grips with the idea that as believers living in a foreign world, we are going to experience unjust suffering. So how do we do that? What do we do? That's the message we're going to be dealing with this afternoon. But there are really three things I want us to take away from this passage. And the first begins with slaves and masters. So you can turn to the next slide. And the first element, he says, is this. Believers, you need to serve or submit 
whichever word you want to put in there, and respect. And the main theme there is slaves should, should submit to their masters. Now, we have to recognize that not all of Peter's audience were slaves, but some of them were. And if you remember where we're going or where we've come from, Peter has just said, listen, as believers, here's what you have to do. You have to live in your society in a way that you do the honorable thing within society so that you draw attention to God and others may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One of the ways we do that, we talked about last week, we submit to the government. But here's another way, Peter says, that his audience can act honorably, thereby bringing glory to God. Slaves, be subject to your masters. Now, we cannot simply say that without digging into what exactly slavery looked like, both in the ancient world and what the biblical perspective on slavery is. Because I am convinced that when I say slaves submit to your masters, you have an idea in your mind that is probably less than ideal concerning what Peter's actually saying. So let's begin by thinking of what slavery looked like in the first century world. You can go to the next slide. Thank you. The history of the world is a history of slavery. We, we sort of take for granted that slavery is a negative thing. I'm not saying it's a positive thing. Please don't hear me wrong. But we, we tend to take that for granted and that, in fact, uh, the United States of America was unique in its history for having such a thing as slavery. But actually, if, if you study the history of the world, the history of the world is a history of slavery. It's nearly always been this way until modern times. And actually, if you go into most of the world, uh, there are still quite a few places in the world where slavery is a, is a constant thing. The Roman world, to which Peter was writing to, was shot through with slavery. And we think of slavery that, well, there must have been just a few slaves, but actually, the historical documents that come down to us suggest that perhaps even up to 50% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves, up to half of them. And we, we get in mind that slavery was always something that anyone would seek to, seek to escape, get, get away from. But one of the things we have to understand about Roman slavery is sometimes your position as a slave was more to be desired than your position not as a slave. If you were a slave within Caesar's household, you actually had a very good life. Now, you didn't have freedom, I'll grant you that, but you were fed well, you had a, you had a, you had a roof over your head, uh, you, you had access to doctors and other things. In fact, even in this passage, I want you to notice that Peter suggests that there are different types of masters. There are some who are evil, he talks about those, who are crooked, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but then he suggests that we ought to obey masters even if they're good. So then there are some good masters. Again, that's hard for us to understand because of our conception of what slavery looks, looked like in our culture. I think we also have to understand that slavery in most of the world has been a, a system intricately weaved into the, both the social as well as the economic situation such that abolition of slavery in the Roman world was both unthinkable 
and to some degree impractical. Well, how did you become a slave in the Roman world? Well, you could be born to a slave and then you would be a slave. You could be conquered by another military and there were really two options if you were conquered. Would you like to die or would you like to be a slave? And many chose to become slaves. The third and the interesting one is if you got into, into, slave, into debt. Uh, you imagine today you get into debt and uh, you've got chapter 7 bankruptcy. And, uh, and, and you have various ways of getting out in the ancient world. If, if you fell into debt and you couldn't pay, well, you did have something valuable and that was your time. And so you sold yourself into slavery. Or you could sell someone else into slavery, whether that is a child or a brother. We, we saw that, recall, with the uh, brothers of Joseph. And so this was the way in which people became slaves in the ancient world. And I think the important reason why we need to think about that is because that differs from the form of slavery that we know as chattel slavery in the United States. Chattel slavery was based primarily on skin color. Not so much being born to another uh, nation being conquered, not being sold into it, but is based primarily on skin color. And further, the majority source of those slaves was the slave trade, which in fact was human theft, something that scripture definitively says is problematic. So what exactly is the scripture's position on slavery? We're reading a passage in which Peter says, Obey your masters. So why would Peter say such a thing? Well, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that slavery happened throughout the Old Testament. In fact, even the book of uh, the, the law of the Old Testament legislates what Israel as a nation is supposed to do with this group of things, or th this uh, with slavery. Uh, of course, the Old Testament legislated slavery, but it never mandated it. In the Old Testament, the slaves would be because of fiscal reasons, military reasons, and interestingly enough, choice. If we look in Deuteronomy, there's actually a law that says if you would like to make yourself uh, connected to this master for life, here's the way in which you do that. And of course, that they did that suggested that people wanted to do that. And I think, again, this suggests to us that slavery in the ancient world was not equated with the chattel form of slavery that we had here in the United States. In the scriptural presentation of it, uh, the year of Jubilee would release all of the Jewish slaves so that there would no longer be slavery among the people. Every six years, in fact, if you took a Jewish slave, somebody sells themselves into slavery, they could actually only sell themselves for six years. In the seventh year, they would be freed. I do want to note, in Deuteronomy 24, 7, Scripture explicitly prohibits kidnapping for enslavement. And this, again is the very basis for chattel slavery, the form of slavery we saw in the United States of America. Well, that's the Old Testament. What does the New Testament say? Well, I think there are a lot of people who think that what the New Testament should have called for was the total abolition of slavery. That the New Testament should have said slavery is an evil practice that needs to be ended now. But the New Testament never does that. 
It obviously nowhere defends the practice, but it never calls for its abolition either. Passages like the one we're reading today is not endorsing slavery. It is accepting the world the way it is and asking how believers who live in the midst of that world, particularly believers who have no power over that world, how should they live? Sometimes I think we look critically at the New Testament because we realize that we have some legislative power in our world today. But most believers... Nearly every believer in the New Testament, because of the way the Roman government worked, had no power at all. So it wasn't a matter of how should we change the government. It's simply how do we live in light of the government, in light of what it looks like. Now, I will say there is one time in which slavery is explicitly spoken of in the scriptures in a more developed manner, and that is the book of Philemon. And you'll recall Onesimus was a runaway slave. He runs away from Philemon, runs into Paul in God's good providence. We're not exactly sure how it all takes place. Perhaps he runs to Paul because he knew Paul. Perhaps he's running away and he runs into Paul. We don't quite know. All we know is that Paul meets Onesimus. Onesimus is gloriously converted. He goes back to Philemon and Paul writes a letter to Philemon. And I think if you read between the lines, what Paul essentially says is, is it right for you as a brother of this man to own him? I do think that Paul is suggestively indicating that there is something contradictory between the image of God related in this way between brothers. But again, Paul is not calling for the elimination of this. It was unthinkable in that day. And they didn't have power to do so. I would say that the New Testament is actually the very foundation for why slavery was eventually eliminated. Particularly chattel slavery in the United States. Or in Great Britain. Why is it that people rose up and said, this is not right? It was because there was a recognition that these men and women were made in the image of God. And that the way they were being treated was inhumane. They were not being treated as God's very image. And so if you study the history of abolition, what you will find is Christian after Christian fighting against unchristian ways of activity. So I would say this. It's not surprising that it was the Christian influence, especially in combination with major social changes, That brought about the end to slavery. But let's jump back to Peter here. Because Peter, again, he's in the situation in which some of his congregation, some of the congregation there in Asia Minor, they're slaves. What are they going to do? And Peter says to them, here's what you have to do. I'm not supporting the system. I don't think Peter's saying he supports the system. In fact, I would even say this, that there are certain things that are legislated in Scripture that are against God's will. But God legislates them because of the hardness of men's hearts. Do you remember Mark chapter 10? Jesus says this about divorce. He says, God hates divorce, but God gave you legislation about divorce. Why? If God hates it, then shouldn't he just say, never ever do it? That's something that can never happen? And yet, what does he do? He says, I legislate it because of the hardness of men's hearts. 
It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And yet if it is, how then must it work in the most righteous way? Well, Peter here again, operating with individuals in his congregation who are slaves under masters. And you can just imagine how difficult of a situation this would be. Because if you're a believer, you're living under this master, but this master is not a believer, then he's going to perhaps be calling you to things that you can't do. There's a difficulty of life that he's living under. Now, notice again what Peter commands then. He says this, servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What is Peter saying here? Certainly, he isn't saying what he, we think he might mean. He isn't saying be subject even to unjust masters. In fact, he tells us not only to do that, but to treat them with respect. Now, you'll notice I have crooked masters. The word here about these Masters, these unjust masters, is literally the word for crooked. They're crooked. They're, not, they're supposed to be straight. They're morally crooked. We use the word unjust to refer to that. The, the Greek word is actually related to the word scoliosis. They're crooked. It's not supposed to be the way they are. And yet, when we run into that situation, what should we do? I think our Western immediate impulse is, well, stand up to them. Make sure you don't experience any injustice. Let me be absolutely clear, this was not a live option for Peter's audience. If they had done such, they could have been killed. Likely would have been killed. And no Roman would have ever cared. No Roman would have ever cared. Now, let, me, let us try and understand Peter's command then within the reference frame in which Peter and his readers are in. First, let us celebrate that we do not live in such a world. In God's good grace, we have in most situations of unjust treatment recourse for situations of abuse. And God is not calling us to just simply endure abuse for the sake of enduring abuse. If you are in an abusive situation and you have recourse to get out of it, then I would implore you to get out of it. Scripture is not calling you to simply endure abuse for the sake of enduring abuse. But again, in this ancient Roman world, slaves were possessions. To stand up would have probably led to greater oppression. Would have led this... Master, to actually treat them more, more poorly. So I think Peter gives this command for two reasons. First, I think it would minimize their own difficulty. Respond to your masters, even the unjust ones. Treat them with respect. Obviously, though admittedly, sometimes it may not, most of the time, that probably would result in better treatment. Though again, some people are just simply unjust to be unjust. But the second reason, and this is something we can't miss. The second reason we should do this 
is because this is the means by which we can represent God to a fallen world. Do you not remember what Peter has just said in 2.11 to 12? We are to represent God to a lost world. How do we do that? By acting honorably within the relationships in this world that we have. And he says, so, slaves, you are, according to Roman law, under these masters. And so, respond to them with grace. Respond to them with kindness when they respond back to you with evil. Do you know where Peter is getting this from? He's saying, respond with another worldly grace. And he's quoting this basically straight from Jesus. Because do you know what those masters would be in that relationship? They would be their enemies. Were they not? And what does Jesus say about our treatment of enemies? When they revile you, they'll revile them back. Is that what Jesus says? When they abuse you, bring the abuse right back to them. Jesus actually says, when your enemies abuse you, bless them. When they treat you poorly, seek as much as you can to treat them well. These slaves in the Roman world had no way of freeing themselves. But they could choose how they were going to respond to the abuse they received. And Peter says, one way of bringing glory to God, perhaps even drawing their, their master, the persecutor, to faith in Christ, is by being submissive. Again, I think what Peter is saying here, love our enemies. Do you remember Jesus saying, when a Roman asks you to go one mile, what should you do? Go with him a second. And you and I, we just read that and we think, well, a mile's not too bad, two miles, not too bad. But you have to understand how offensive that is. Somebody's walking along, he's got his Roman pack on, and he says, you, you're subordinate to me. You, I don't care what you're doing in life. You take my bag and walk with me for a mile. It's abuse. It's unjust. Shouldn't work that way. And Jesus says, go with him two miles. You think maybe that might get him to think? (laughs) You think that might make him start to wonder about what's different about you than about those who are otherwise, who are bitter the entire time, they're walking with him the mile. So, Peter says, if you find yourself in this unenviable position in which you cannot extricate yourself, then respond to your master, do what he asks, and be gracious. Treat him with respect. Now, the question we might ask is this, well, what, what exactly are we supposed to do with this? Because here we are. Uh, I'm hoping there are no uh, slaves in this room. I, I can't imagine that to be the case. So how do we take a, a command like this, be submissive to your master, what, what are we supposed to do with this? And I think that this passage has some relevance to us. First, Peter's point goes beyond slavery. If you'd go ahead and turn to the next slide... Here's a quote by a guy named Brian Murawski. By the way, if you're 
interested. Uh, I think I mentioned when I first came that we were writing a First Peter commentary together. It is now out, and this is from that commentary. He says this, Peter's point has more to do with living amid injustice than living amid slavery. And there is plenty of injustice going around. I want you to notice again how, how Peter indicates this, because yes, he begins with saying, servants be subject to your masters. But notice what he does in verse 19 and following. He actually steps away from slaves and masters, and he just simply says a principle. And that principle is this. This is a gracious thing, or this is a commendable thing before God. When you are mindful of God, that one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I think that's the theme of this passage. You know what the the slaves submitting to unjust masters is? It's It's a intense form of unjust suffering. And so what Peter says is, slaves... You are experiencing unjust suffering. And how are you going to endure and live in the midst of that? But then the rest of you too. What happens if you endure unjust suffering? And here's what he says. It's a commendable thing in God's sight. It's a gracious thing. When one is mindful of God, that he endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, there's a second way in which some have attempted to take this passage, and they've, they've made it in relationship to the workplace. And I can understand, uh, I can understand the analogy. Uh, there are times when I have been in the workplace, and I've looked at the clock, and it was 10 minutes until I went home. I continued to work for a half hour. I looked up, and it's five minutes until I get to go home. <laughs> have you been there? And sometimes it feels like you're in slavery to this job. Well, of course, we're not quite in slavery to our jobs, are we? Uh, Because I could always quit tomorrow. I could walk away from that job. But I would say there are two analogies that could be at play here. It is possible that there are times where you cannot quit. You're suffering. You, You can't letting go of this job, there's unjust treatment happening. And how then do we experience, how do we respond in the midst of working in a workplace which is unjust, but we cannot extricate ourselves from the situation at the present moment? What do we do? I think Peter's saying here our duty then is to submit to the degree that we are able. Obviously, never do anything immoral. Submit to the degree that you are able to the to the leadership that's above you, and do it with respect, even as you seek the way out of that. We're, I think a second analogy here is that there is an analogy at play here, that when you are at the workplace, we ought to be the sorts of people who respond to those who are above us with genuine respect and with the desire to submit as far as we are able. And so the analogy, I think, does play to our workplace. Christians, you ought to be the best employees that your employer has. You should. And they should say, why is it that this person gets more done than anybody else? Why is it that I know that when my back is turned, they're still doing their job when nobody else is? Why is it that I hear complaints from everybody, but I don't hear complaints from this person? They're just going to get the job done and do the best that they can. 
And all of that might shine the light of Christ such that that you can reflect that person back to God. This is Peter's whole point in the passage. Live among the Gentiles honorably so that when they see your good conduct, they ask the question, why are they acting this way? And this is what I'd have to say at the end of the day with the slavery issue. That master who is unjust knows he's unjust and knows he's treating you unfairly. No, he's he's treating this person unfairly. And yet they continue to come back, knowing they can't get out of the situation. But they continue to be kind. And this is what Peter is saying, is a reflection of Jesus himself, who himself suffered unjustly. So in our relationships, we ought to mimic Christ. We ought to follow his example. So the first point we indicated was that we need to submit, serve, and respect. The second thing, if you'd go to the next next slide, believers should suffer and invest. So if we are to serve and respect, we are also to suffer and invest. Notice again verse 19, what he says, this is a gracious thing or this is a commendable thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, you'll notice the principle I've tried to draw from this. Believers should endure sovereignly granted unjust suffering. Both of those are extremely important. Sovereignly granted unjust suffering and gain eternal reward. So let's walk through each of those reasons. Peter notes that the suffering should be unjust suffering. Slaves or Christians in other contexts who do evil and then suffer for it should not consider such suffering to be rewardable. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing. Do you see what he's saying? There are two ways to suffer. You could actually sometimes be suffering for your own failure. And not suffering for righteousness. And throughout the history of the world, I think we've seen individuals who suffer because of foolishness rather than righteousness. The one who suffers because they respond graciously to the person who comes and attacks them and asks their opinion on a public matter and you respond with grace and truth should not be ashamed. And if they come under suffering for just speaking the truth, then it's unjust suffering. But if we offend, not the truth, if we offend, not the truth offends, but we offend, then it's a problem. Our suffering should not be because of our own demeanor. Perhaps you've heard of the church, I don't actually think it's a church, called Westboro Baptist Church. Westboro pickets, funerals, and uh, military funerals and other things with signs that essentially say God hates gay people. And then they have the audacity to claim that they're being persecuted, that they're suffering injustice. No, no, they're not. We should never be the source of tension. We should. The truth, yes, sometimes must be. 
We always speak truth, but we speak it lovingly and with kindness. And so if we suffer because of our own demeanor, then it is not unjust suffering. It is just suffering. But Peter says our suffering should be unjust. That is, if we are going to give offense, the offense must be through the truth, but not through the way in which we say something. The second thing he says is this, that it must be sovereignly granted. He, he makes this phrase, you see it there in verse uh, 19. He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. The actual Greek phrase says this, uh, this is a gracious thing when on account of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And I think that on account of God means two things. First, that we suffer on account of God. That is, our suffering is sovereignly granted. I think we sometimes can get the false idea in our minds that God would never allow us to experience unjust suffering. Oh, God wouldn't allow that in my life. No, no. God only means the good for me. Forget it. That sometimes the good for us is to follow the footprints of Jesus. And do you know what Jesus experienced? Unjust suffering. In 3.17, Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will. And do you know what the point is? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's God's will for you that you would suffer for doing good. In 4.19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here they are, doing good, entrusting their soul to God. And what does God allow in their lives? Unjust suffering. We must face this head on. God very well may allow unjust suffering in your life. We'll talk about why in just a few moments. So it is sovereignly granted to us. Indeed, we see in our world today, there's all kinds of injustice. Injustice that you did not seek after or someone did not seek after, but they experienced. There is the injustice of being born to parents who are abusers. Physical abusers, substance abusers. There's the injustice of being married to someone who begins to become an abuser. And again, I'm not in any way saying that you need to stay in that relationship. There are ways in which one can get out of such things. But I'm simply saying that there are times where God does allow individuals to enter into experiences of suffering. We don't like that. We almost think God shouldn't do that. And yet, when we look at the life of Christ, the life of Christ, he came to endure unjust suffering. And sometimes it is from his hand that we endure unjust suffering. But there's a second thing that Peter indicates here. Uh, when he says mindful of God or on account of God, it means that our suffering derives from our obedience to God. Well, what exactly does that mean? I think sometimes we think that the only sorts of unjust suffering that we're ever going to get positive response for is when we unjustly suffer in regard to something biblical. So we stand up for biblical truth and therefore we suffer for it and then there's going to be reward for unjust suffering. But I think what Peter is saying here 
Because notice, he's talking to the slaves. And most of the time, I think these slaves are not simply being abused because of their relationship to Christ. They're simply being abused because of their, the unfair situation in which they're placed in. And here's what God is saying to them. You are in an unfair situation. You are enduring unjust suffering in this life. And it may have to do with righteousness. Sometimes it probably just has to do with trying to be the, the right person. And somebody's just being unjust to you. And do you know what I think Peter's saying? When we experience any sort of injustice from which we cannot extract ourselves, then we should expect that we will be rewarded for that experience. God himself will reward us. So let me give you an example. You're a single mother working a job you can't quit because you need the money. Your employer is simply vicious to you because they know it too. They know you can't quit. And so they treat you incredibly unjustly. Now, this isn't primarily in reference to your relationship to God, is it? Because they would do this to somebody else who isn't a believer, who, who is not a believer. And yet, how do you respond? Well, you should be looking for a way out of that, for sure. But while that's happening, responding in a gracious way, that is, with kindness to those who, who are mean. Again, not putting yourself under in such a way that you're inviting more abuse. Responding to HR to the degree that you can. But there are times where we find ourselves inextricably tied in situations of injustice. And we will not find satisfaction in this world. Will there ever be satisfaction? And I think that this passage is saying yes. You see, one of the glorious truths that you and I believe and know to be true, that so many do not, is that this world isn't everything. This isn't the end of the matter. And I am firmly convinced that God will make all wrongs right. So, I su suggested that this point is suffer and invest. You now might be asking the question, well, where am I getting the idea of invest from? Or on the screen, gain reward. I'm actually getting this straight from Jesus. If you turn to the next slide, in, uh, you, you may be able to read that. If not, I'm going to read it for you here in just a second. Peter uses a really odd word here. Remember in verse 19, he says this, this is a gracious thing. What does he mean by gracious thing? He's actually using a really rare word. It's the word we usually use for grace. He says, this is grace. Why would he be using that word? I'm convinced he's using that word because he's following Jesus. This is Jesus in Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, well, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. By the way, every time I read, what credit is that to you? Is the exact same word that Peter uses here for that, that word grace. That's why I'm convinced he's referring back to this passage. 
Here's Jesus' then positive admonition after he says, if you're just doing what the sinners do, if you're only responding good to people who do good to you, then you're just like everybody else. But here's what believers should do. Love your enemies. Now that sounds really good. And we're all thinking, yeah, love your enemies, love your enemies. And then I say, here's a slave whose master treats them unjustly. And Jesus says, love your master. And we say, not that enemy. No, that's too far. Not that kind of enemy. That's the power of this passage. That's who Jesus is saying. People who hate you. People who treat you unjustly. We must love our enemies. And then do what? Do good. Lend. Expecting nothing in return. And when we have done this, when we have loved those who hate us, when we have done good to those who do evil to us, when we have lent to those to whom are simply robbing us, here's what he says. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. There are two blessings that God gives here. He says, first, your reward is going to be incredible. You know what he says? It's going to be worth it. You endured unjust suffering, it'll be worth it. You gave knowing that you were never going to get it back, it will, it'll be worth it. But not only that, second, you will be sons of the Most High, for He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Do you, you know what that's saying? It's saying, this is the way in which you can reflect the goodness of your Father. Let's not forget. When did Christ die for us? For while we were enemies, yet sinners, while we were enemies of his, Christ died for us. We were the enemies. We were the ones who towards him were negative, and yet he did the greatest good to us. And so we are charged to be merciful. This is the final conclusion of what Jesus says. Be merciful as your father is merciful. Reflect his goodness to a lost and dying world. When people are evil towards you, respond with respect. Even as Jesus responded to those who put him on that cross. And I would simply say, if you go to the next slide... What I've added here at the very bottom is essentially what Peter's doing. Because remember, Jesus has just said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And then I would add this one. If you only obey masters who are good and gentle, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But here's what you can do. You can be gracious to the unjust. And that'll open some eyes. That'll make people ask the question, why are you different? So Peter is saying here, be different than the world. Love your enemies. 
And when you do, you may not get it good in this life. Then the life to come, I promise you, it'll be worth it. The final thing that Peter tells us in this passage, in the third principle, you can turn to the next one. He says this, step and follow. Believers must follow Jesus' example in enduring unjust suffering. You'll notice what he says in verse uh, 21. He says, for to this you have been called. Well, of course, what does this mean? refer to, you can go to the next slide, this refers to suffer when doing good. Literally, Paul or Peter is saying this, God called you to a life in which you will suffer for doing the right thing. God called you to it. And that word called is really fascinating. We've already seen in 1 Peter. Do you know what it means? It means that you are being drawn to a special favor. And how ironic that sounds. To this special favor you were called, that you would suffer for doing good. How is that a special favor, Peter? (laughs) That doesn't sound very special. And I would simply again say, do you believe there's a world to come? Listen again to Paul's words, words that I've quoted before from this pulpit, but words that need to deeply resonate within our hearts. Here's what Paul says. It has been granted to us not only to believe in Christ. All right, so first, it's been granted to us to believe in Christ. (laughs) That's great. What a blessing. It's been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. And we said, no, no, say that again, Paul. (laughs) I understood your first point. I didn't quite understand your second point. How is it a blessing that we've been called to that we might suffer for his name? I mean, just read Paul sometime. Do you know he gloried in his sufferings? He rejoiced. I, I think as he wrote, I've been beaten this many times. I've been shipwrecked this many times. I think he had a smile on his face. Do you know why? Because he actually believed there's a world to come. And he believed that when he died, when that guillotine took off his head, he looked into the face of his Savior, and his Savior said, I've been waiting for you. Come into the joy that has been prepared for you because of your faithfulness. You too, Could I encourage you, because I know that there are some in this room right now who have endured incredible unjust suffering. And maybe today you are inextricably linked in a situation in which you are enduring unjust suffering. Here is what God calls you to. Even in the midst of that unjust suffering, reflect the goodness of God. Be kind to your enemy. Show them who God is by your response. Why then are we called to live in this way? I think that there are two reasons we're called to live this way. One is that we live in a broken world. 
And unjust suffering simply happens. But the second thing, and the more important thing, is this is the life of Jesus. Jesus lived this way. And so we must follow the steps of Jesus. If we are to ask, how must I live? Jesus left us the pattern. He left us the YouTube clip, if you would. To say, here's what you do in this circumstance. Here's then what you do in the next circumstance. And when we face unjust suffering, what does he say? To the degree that you can't extricate yourself from it. Respond with grace. For this is how you reflect your Savior. So what are the implications? How do we live this out? Go to the final screen there. A number of things here. First, unjust suffering is not evidence of God's displeasure. We think so. Sometimes when we get in those circumstances, we say, God, what did I do? And God's answer is, you didn't do anything. Unjust suffering is the lot of believers. Sometimes God leads us into unjust suffering, and because you're in it doesn't mean you've sinned. Second, and this can be hard. This can be really hard. But I think it's what Peter's saying. Thank God for your unjust suffering. Why? Well, he's got a number of reasons. Unjust suffering gives evidence of your relationship to God. When we suffer unjustly and yet respond with grace, do you know what that does? Is it shows to the world that we are reflecting our Savior. It is unnatural, is it not? What's natural when we face our enemy? Hostility. But you know, when you see the person who doesn't respond that way, you say there's something different about them. And when you hear in your own heart, when you see the reflection of your own soul that says when you endure suffering, it's hard, it's painful, but you want to reflect Christ. What you see in that is the work of the very Holy Spirit of God among you. So thank him for that. Second, thank God for it because unjust suffering draws us closer to Christ. When we suffer unjustly, we are reminded of he who suffered entirely unjustly. At the end of the day, I always have to ask the question, if I'm suffering, did I deserve it? Sometimes the answer is yes. Jesus never deserved it. And his suffering was more intense than all of ours. And so to the degree that I experience that I draw closer to him and I seek to reflect him in this life, the third reason, thank God for unjust suffering because unjust suffering provides opportunity for eternal reward. Remember at the very beginning I said unjust suffering does not evidence of God's displeasure. In fact, unjust suffering may very well be the evidence of God's favor towards you. Because he's giving you opportunity for two things. To store up treasure in heaven. And to reflect Christ to a lost and dying world. Do you know how Jesus won over many of his enemies? He won them over by suffering in their place. By responding to their evil, to their hate with love. 
Wouldn't it be a glorious, glorious thing that if the person who today induces your unjust suffering by means of your gracious response comes to repentance, would that not be glorious? And so, thank God for the unjust suffering because it provides an opportunity for witness. Would you join me as we go to our Lord in prayer? Oh Lord, this afternoon we have talked about a topic that is deep, heavy, and difficult. We think about those who have endured the injustice of slavery. We think about those even today who are in the midst of various levels of injustice. And our immediate heart response is that these things ought not to be so, and we know that to be the case. And yet, in your sovereignty, you have allowed them. Help us then to look at our unjust suffering as opportunity. Opportunity to reflect you to a lost and dying world. An opportunity to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. I pray, Father, for the saints who sit before me, some of whom are right now enduring unjust suffering. May they have your eternal perspective in mind with these things. And would you, through their testimony, bring their persecutors to repentance and faith in Christ so that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.